Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And it's probably no secret to any of you that life changes significantly when you retire. Now, it's not just life that changes, but it's also, or should also be at least, your approach to financial planning that changes too. And if you don't change your strategy, if you don't change your approach, then you won't be able to most effectively plan for that next phase of life. The problem, though, is people get that. They understand that intuitively. The harder part is changing your mindset. The harder part is changing the way you view things. Because people are always okay with a strategy that already aligns with their way of thinking, it already fits their worldview. But if their way of thinking is off, then it's going to be very difficult to accept a strategy that's outside of their line of thinking or even outside of their worldview. It really takes a mindset shift. So many times when I'm working with clients, I don't start by recommending specific strategies. I start by wanting to reframe the way they view certain things because until that new mental framework is there, it's difficult to successfully implement the right strategies, even as simple as those strategies might be. So today, I'm going to go over what I believe are three crucial mindset shifts that I think retirees need to make in order to have the most secure retirement possible. So before we jump in, as we like to do every week, I'm going to quickly highlight the review of this week. And this review comes from username Deacon Blues. Deacon Blues gives a five-star review and says, planning for retirement is a long, arduous process that will take years to prepare for properly. At 54, I feel like I'm heading into a master's program with no instructors or set curriculum. This podcast provides insight on how to structure a plan while weighing the future impact of possible strategies. You can never have too much information about this topic. I look forward to each episode. Keep up the good work. Deacon Blues, thank you very much for that review. And thank you to all of you who have left reviews. And if you haven't done so already, would appreciate you doing so. It allows more people to find the show. And the goal, of course, is for more people to find the show. Also, if you want more places to consume this type of a content, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. It's under Root Financial Partners. You go to YouTube and just search Root Financial Partners. You'll find that these podcasts are posted there as well, as well as additional content every Saturday that's more video format and walking through some of these different strategies. All right, well, let's jump into the episode today. Today, again, I'm going to cover three crucial, and I truly mean crucial, because if these things are understood then you're going to be unable to really probably pursue the things that matter most in terms of either planning for retirement or fully enjoying retirement. So the first thing that I see people need to make, the first mindset shift is reframing the way they view risk. So if I ask you, what's the first thing you think of when I say risk, at least in the context of financial planning or investing? Well, chances are, if you're like anybody else, you're probably thinking to flashbacks to 2008 and what the stock market was like then, or March of 2020 and what the stock market not just was like, but what it felt like with everything else going on then. So for most people, risk is stock market declines. It's the uncertainty of the stock market and the crazy volatility of the stock market. And so that is risk. That one category is risk to most people. Well, let's play that out. If the stock market is risky, then what is safe? If we follow that line of thinking, cash is safe. So cash must be risk-free. Cash does not fluctuate wildly like the stock market does. And that is the consensus view, but I could not disagree more. Risk to retiree, 
And I'm going to point out the nuances, of course, to this, but risk to a retiree can only be understood in the context of purchasing power. In other words, risk can only be understood in your ability to keep up with inflation over time. Because let's look at this. Let's assume you retire at age 62, you and a spouse. Statistically, one of you is going to live for 30 years. So that puts one of you living until age 92. And that's just on average. It could certainly be longer. Now, if inflation rises at 3% over a 30-year time period, then what cost today $100,000, so the things that you could purchase today with $100,000 will cost $240,000 by the end of that 30-year time period. Or put another way, if you have a million dollars in cash on day one of retirement and you do the risk-free thing and you keep that million dollars in cash for those full 30 years, well, you still have a million dollars in cash. The nominal value is the same, but at an inflation rate of 3% per year, the purchasing power of that million dollars by age 90 is the equivalent to a purchasing power of $416,000 in today's dollars. So as we look at that, what we see is cash, it's stable, sure, but it absolutely loses out to purchasing power or to inflation over time. It's almost guaranteed to do so. Well, compare that to stocks, the risky thing, and there's absolutely risky components of stocks, but let's do this for a second. Long-term, the S&P 500 has averaged about 10% per year. Now, as we discussed, there's been years where it's been significantly below that, and there's also been years where it's been significantly above that, but the average return is about 10%. Well, if we were to take that million dollars, though we just hypothetically said, what if that stayed in cash for 30 years? What if instead we put that million dollars into the S&P 500, and over that 30 years, it did its average return of 10%? Well, 10% per year for 30 years would take that million dollars and turn it to $17.5 million 30 years later. Even if we adjust it for inflation, the present value, the present day value of $17.5 million 30 years from now, it's $7.3 million. I mean, that represents purchasing power of $7.3 million in today's dollars, which means your purchasing power has increased by over 700% investing, whereas it lost a significant amount of money staying in cash. Now, of course, stocks come with volatility. And since 1980, the average annual decline, meaning even in years where the stock market is up, there's been an average intra-year decline of around 14%. Now, we saw that earlier already this year with the Russia and the Ukraine situation, with inflation concerns. And yes, you hear people saying this is unprecedented. On the personal side, yes, there's some major bad stuff happening. But from the market standpoint, it was average. The market was down almost right in alignment with what it averages as an entry-year decline. Now, as of this recording, I'm recording this in April. Who knows what happens throughout the remainder of the year? But what we do know is one in five years, on average, we have a bear market. In the average bear market, the downturn is about 30%, and it takes 15 months to go from peak to trough, so from the market high to the bottom. So hearing those numbers, it's not hard to see why people think of that as risky. That's a lot of money to lose in a short period of time. But if you expand the time horizon, that volatility passes. If you look at all rolling five-year time periods, so going back decades and decades and decades, looking at all rolling five-year time periods of the S&P 500, you have a positive return of about 85% of the time. If you look at all rolling 10-year time periods, you have a positive outcome over 95% of the time. And there's never been a rolling 20-year period where it's had a negative return. So as you look at this, as you look at the fact that that volatility tends to pass the longer your time horizon, and you combine this or take into account the impact of inflation and what that will do over time, what's more risky, stocks or cash? 
To me, cash and bonds carry far more risk than people realize when the main goal in retirement isn't to preserve the short-term value of some fixed number of dollars in your portfolio, it's to maintain the long-term purchasing power of those dollars. And to do so sometimes means accepting some volatility in the short term in order to be okay in the long term. Now, one big caveat with this is that to maintain your ability to remain fully invested as those 2008s happen, as those March of 2020s happen, as those really scary times in the market happen, you may need some cash and some bonds in your portfolio to give you the ability to withstand that and to not draw from your stocks even as the market is falling. But too much of cash or too much in bonds and you're starting to take on much more risk. So that's the first thing I like to reframe for people is what is truly risk? Is it the stability of your value of your portfolio today or is it your ability to maintain your purchasing power over time? To me, the far bigger risk is people being able to preserve their purchasing power over time because volatility is temporary. The ups and downs are temporary when you look at the stock market. Your loss of purchasing power is permanent. You can't get that back once it's gone. Now, you have to also take in the emotional component to this as well. I am purely looking at this from the financial side. And the right portfolio for you is a combination of what makes most sense financially and what makes most sense emotionally. A lot of people, they get this conceptually, but they just don't feel quite safe or they don't feel quite secure enough to be more aggressive. And if they have enough money saved and if they have enough in their portfolio to overcome the lower rates of return to be expected from cash and bonds, well, great, you have some trade-offs there. And you absolutely have to look at the emotional side because if you are too aggressive and it just keeps you up at night and you don't have that peace of mind, we've missed the point. But you have to start to understand what is truly risk and what is just temporary and how do you construct a portfolio based upon that. So the first mindset shift that I believe is important for most retirees is to reframe the way they think about risk. The second mindset shift and somewhat in alignment with this, but also kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, is before retirement, you focus on maximizing returns. In retirement, you need to focus on maximizing resiliency. What do I mean by that? Well, in retirement, you win by not losing. And Charlie Ellis, who is the founder of Greenwich Associates and just a big, big deal in the investment world, he illustrated this perfectly. He has an article called The Loser's Game. And I'm just going to read directly from this. Quoting his article now, he says, Simon Ramo identified the crucial difference between a winner's game and a loser's game in his excellent book on playing strategy called Extraordinary Tennis for the Ordinary Tennis Player. Over a period of many years, he observed that tennis was not one game, but two. One game of tennis is played by professionals and very few gifted amateurs. The other game is played by all the rest of us. Although players in both games use the same equipment, dress, rules, and scoring, and conform to the same etiquette and customs, the basic nature of their two games are almost entirely different. After extensive scientific and statistical analysis, Dr. Ramos summed it up this way. Professionals win points, amateurs lose points. Professional tennis players stroke the ball with strong, well-aimed shots through long and often exciting rallies until one player is able to drive the ball just beyond the reach of his opponent. Errors are seldom made by these splendid players. Expert tennis is what I call winner's game because the ultimate outcome is determined by the actions of the winner. Victory is due to winning more points than the opponent wins, not, as we shall see in a moment, simply to getting a higher score than the opponent, but getting that higher score by winning points. Amateur tennis, Ramo found, is almost entirely different. 
Brilliant shots, long and exciting rallies, and seemingly miraculous recoveries are few and far between. On the other hand, the ball is fairly often hit into the net or out of bounds, and double faults at service are not uncommon. The amateur duffer seldom beats his opponent, but he beats himself all the time. The victor in this game of tennis gets a higher score than the opponent, but he gets that higher score because his opponent is losing even more points. As a scientist and statistician, Dr. Ramo gathered data to support his hypothesis, and he did it in a very clever way. Instead of keeping conventional game scores, love, 15-all, 30-15, etc., Ramo simply counted points won versus points lost, and here's what he found. In expert tennis, about 80% of the points are won. In amateur tennis, about 80% of the points are lost. In other words, professional tennis is a winner's game. The final outcome is determined by the activities of the winner. In amateur tennis is a loser's game. The final outcome is determined by the activities of the loser. The two games are, in their fundamental characteristic, not at all the same. They are opposites. From this discovery of the two kinds of tennis, Dr. Ramo builds a complete strategy by which ordinary tennis players can win games, sets, and matches again and again by following the simple strategy of losing less and letting the opponent defeat himself. Dr. Ramo explains that if you choose to win at tennis, as opposed to having a good time, the strategy for winners is to avoid mistakes. The way to avoid mistakes is to be conservative and keep the ball in play, letting the other fellow have plenty of room in which to blunder his way to defeat because he, being an amateur, and probably not having read Ramo's book, will play a losing game and not know it. He will make errors. He will make too many errors. Once in a while, he will hit a serve you cannot possibly handle, but much more frequently, he will double fault. Occasionally, he may volley balls past you at the net, but more often than not, they will sail far out of bounds. He will slam balls into the net from the front court and from the back court. His game will be a routine catalog of gaffes, goofs, and grief. He will try to beat you by winning, but he is not good enough to overcome the many inadvertent adversities of the game itself. The situation is not allowing him to win with an activist strategy, and he will instead lose. His efforts to win more points will, unfortunately for him, only increase his error rate. As Ramo instructs us in his book, the strategy for winning in a loser's game is to lose less. Avoid trying too hard. By keeping the ball in play, give the opponent as many opportunities as possible to make mistakes and blunders way to defeat. In brief, by losing less, become the victor. End quote. All right, so what does this have to do with investing? That makes sense for tennis. That's kind of funny. It makes sense, but we're not talking about tennis here. We might play tennis in retirement, but other than that, what on earth does that have to do with our investment strategy? Well, here's a very practical example. A lot of people come to me, and when they come to me, their portfolio is way overexposed to large cap growth stocks. It's hard to fault people for doing so. From 2010 until the end of last year, large cap growth stocks have grown at an annualized return of over 17%. That is a significant long-term growth rate over over a decade. So naturally, a lot of people want to load up on those investments. That's the winning that people have experienced. The hard part is they haven't seen the losing in a while. And what I'll sometimes do is I'll do this. I'll take them back to 2000. I'll say, look, what if you took a portfolio that was 100% invested in the same large cap growth stocks that have returned over 17% over the last decade plus? Well, what if you did that with 100% of your portfolio? Let's say it's a million bucks and you started in 2000. And in 2000, you retired. 
well, you retired. So let's assume that you start drawing $50,000 per year and you adjust that for inflation. What does that look like? Well, even though the average return between 2000 and the end of 2021, the average return of that group of assets was more than enough to generate 50,000 per year from that time until then. The problem is you don't get the average every single year. There's been a whole lot of wins in recent years, but there's also a lot of losses. And had you taken a portfolio that was just invested in large cap growth stocks starting in 2000 and drawing 5% per year, so 50,000 in this example, adjusted for inflation, you would have fully run out of money by the end of 2012. So put another way, even though the average return of that group of investments was more than enough to generate that level of income for these 21 plus years, you don't get the average return every single year. And because of that, you would have run out of money just 12 years into retirement using fairly average withdrawal rates. Now let's compare that to another portfolio. And let's compare it to a portfolio that did have growth stocks, but also had value stocks and did have U.S. stocks, but also had international and did have large companies, but also had small and also had some bonds and some cash to weather some downturns. If you compare the all growth stock portfolio to this more diversified portfolio, the more diversified portfolio is survived and doing well. And it's still continuing to generate that 50,000 per year adjusted for inflation 21 plus years later even though the all large cap growth stock portfolio, it ran out of money nine plus years ago. So this is what relates back to the losers game that Dr. Ramo talked about and that Charlie Ellis talked about as he was quoting Dr. Ramo in his article. To quote it again, he says, if you choose to win at tennis, the strategy for winning is to avoid mistakes. The way to avoid mistakes is to be conservative and keep the ball in play, letting the other fellow have plenty of room in which to blunder his way to defeat because he, being an amateur, will play a losing game and not know it. End quote. Now, in investing, there's not an opponent. You could say the market's the opponent, but that's not necessarily the same principle here in the book. But what is so important is this. He says the way to avoid mistakes is to keep the ball in play. The way to avoid defeat in investing is to keep your portfolio in play. When all of your portfolio is concentrated in one asset class, when all of your portfolio is too loaded up in one investment, I get it. The goal is to try to maximize long-term returns. When you try to maximize those returns, but you're also having to draw from that portfolio when there's a downturn, when there's an inevitable downturn, you are going to get hit much harder than you otherwise would have had you still been in your working years and able just to see that out. In retirement, you don't have that flexibility anymore, which is why as we talk about this, the goal in retirement is less on maximizing returns. Now, we do want to maximize returns as much as possible, but even more so than that, we want to maximize resiliency. We want to maximize options. We want to ensure that you're not so dependent upon one asset class that if it does really well, then you're doing really well, but it also exposes you to that risk of if it stops doing well, your portfolio and your retirement might be at jeopardy. So that's the second mindset change, and it's one of moving from maximizing returns to maximizing resiliency. And the final mindset change is a shift from a savings mindset to a spending mindset. Now, a savings mindset is not bad, but if you go back to episode number 64, I go in depth a lot more about this, not just on the topic itself, but methods to change it. But oftentimes, the people who worry the most are the people who save the most. The people who save the most are the people who are prepared the most, and the people who are prepared the most have the highest probability of success. Not just success in terms of the ability to not run out of money, 
but the ability to spend more in their retirement years than they possibly could have in their working years. So there's almost this sense of what got you here won't get you there, of what got you prepared or what made you prepared for this moment was the result of living frugally and living within your means and saving first and, and keeping spending under control. Wonderful things. And not necessarily things that should just be thrown out the window, but there certainly should be more balance. I see a lot of people who are very well prepared for retirement, and they still feel this sense of guilt or worry if they spend too much, if they take that extra vacation, if they go out to a nicer meal, if they do anything outside of the ordinary. And there is a problem if that mindset is maintained throughout retirement, because if that mindset is maintained throughout retirement, then you have to ask yourself, what was all the money for in the first place? If that money is not for living richly for you and your family and for causes and charities that you care about, what's it really there for? If it's just there to save and save and save and grow and grow and grow forever, almost as a safety net for you, it's good to have a safety net, but at what point is it costing you? What point is it costing you in terms of the experiences you could be having and in terms of the things that you could be doing in terms of the causes you could be supporting? So making sure that you don't just go from one who saves everything to spends everything, but understanding how much your portfolio can support, understanding what your financial plan would allow for, and then giving yourself the permission and really learning the ability to spend an amount that's meaningful to you and is also supported by your financial plan. Again, go back to episode number 64 with this, where I talk about this in a lot more detail. In my opinion, it's one of the most important episodes that I've ever done, just in terms of seeing what matters most in retirement and what are some of those biggest hurdles. Episode number 64 talks about this a whole lot more in depth, going from a saving mindset to a spending mindset. But in today's episode, I just want to cover it fairly briefly. So I hope all of these things are helpful because to make change with your retirement strategies means changing your strategies and changing your tactics. But before you can change your strategy, before you can change your tactic, we have to change our mindset. Our mindset is what everything flows from and the way we view things, the way we view our planning, the way we view risk, the way we view spending, the way we view all these different things, it matters because from there, that's where the strategies and the tactics flow from. So that is it for today's episode. Thank you very much as always for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.